We are going to get back to studying about the end of the world, the end times. Um, and uh, we, we started talking last week. I'd like to finish talking about uh, the second coming tonight. Um, and we're going to go to Matthew 24 and spend a little bit of time in Matthew 24. Uh, not on the entirety of what Jesus says there, but on the part that kind of relates to uh, second coming in particular. Um, so let's talk about this a little bit. Um, basically what we've talked about thus far in the first two weeks of this, we've talked about philosophy and, and the way to interpret scripture. We talked about a, a literal approach versus a symbolic approach and, and things like that. Um, and last week we started talking about the idea that Jesus will come again. One of the things that virtually all Christianity agrees on is that Jesus will come again. And that is because it is one of those things that is really clear in Scripture. Um, we looked at John 14.3. Uh, Jesus said, I'm coming <laughs> to receive you. If I go away, I will come again to take you. So we, we trust the words of Jesus that after he left, he would come again. Um, at his ascension, the angel said, why do you keep staring up? The same Jesus who was taken from you will come again the same way he was, he was taken. So there are promises in the Word of God. Uh, book uh, of Revelation closes with Jesus saying, I am coming soon and my reward is with me. Um, we looked at uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, describing the coming of the Lord, uh, in, in revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his angels. Uh, looked at some pretty dramatic imagery there. Uh, we looked at Zechariah chapter 14, um, and I hope that that kind of blows your mind when you read about the Lord will come down and as his feet touch the Mount of Olives, the mountain will split in two, half to the north and half to the south. That's a pretty incredible image. You know, a mountain broken in two by the arrival of someone coming down out of the sky, you know, and it talks about in fire and in judgment and it being a unique day where even when it's night, it's still light. So the second coming. Now, what you'll notice as we go through this, my original plan was to do this for five weeks. Um, that means we have two more weeks to talk about the millennium, the tribulation, the battle of Armageddon, the rapture. So that's not happening. So we're probably going to go for through the end of February talking about this stuff. Uh, and then we'll do the video thing on uh, the Exodus, the historical proofs of Exodus uh, when we get back. Because uh, March, like I said before, March is going to be uh, spring cafe, baptismal service, um, worship night, like we're going to have a couple different things in March uh, on Wednesday nights that are different than our normal Bible study stuff. Uh, and then Good Friday service at the end there. So when we get back to Bible study, we'll pick up in that. But what you'll notice is this. We started kind of like overall picture idea, you know, is, is Israel still Israel or do the promises of Israel go to the church? We started in big picture stuff. Then what we moved to was something that we're all very sure of, second coming. What we're going to do from here is we're going to start moving into things that are more opinion-based. And there are lots of varying opinions in Christianity on these topics. Hopefully tonight we get to the millennium. There are three major ideas of what the millennium will look like. Um, I'm not trying to convince you that I'm right about these things. I will try to convince you I'm right about Jesus coming again. Right? That, that I will try to convince you about that because... I think that's a slam dunk. That to me is, you. there's no place in the Bible that suggests anything different. Jesus is coming again. That's just what he says. But when you start to get into some of these other things, what I'd like to do is I'd like to turn us to some scripture. I'd like us to read some different things. And then I'd like you to know what the philosophy is behind that so that you are maybe more aware of what you're hearing when you hear about end time stuff. Um, some people today, and we're going to look at this, their view of the millennium affects their idea of what Christianity should be doing today or not doing today uh, in terms of uh, interacting with this world. What do they, you expect to happen as we as Christians go out into the world? Your view of the millennium changes kind of your expectation uh, of what will happen uh, during this age. And so we want to look into that. Um, I don't want to have huge arguments, and I don't think we will, but I'm going to try to talk through them simply um, and, and see what we can do with that. Now, if you disagree with me, if you think I'm off base, if you think I'm wrong even, totally fine with that. Totally fine with that. Uh, so long as, as you look at the Word of God, that's where you get your opinion from. Recognize that almost no matter what you do, when you come to the Word of God, you come with some prejudice about it. 
Uh, I've talked to some folks who are very like strict Catholic before, and, and some of the things that, that they feed back to me on the Bible about what does this mean and what does this say, they, they don't even recognize some of the, um, you know, the, the prejudice they have, some of the, the ideas they have. Similarly, I don't. Because I just come to the Bible with my experience. You know what I mean? So we all come from our own perspectives and stuff on that. It doesn't mean the Bible's wishy-washy. It just means at times there are places where the Bible, especially in prophecy, is a little bit hard to like nail down. You know what I mean? There are some things that were nailed downable. Um, I gave you a chart last time about some literal prophecies that were fulfilled. Uh, did anybody take a look at that? Literal prophecies? What kind of prophecies were literally fulfilled about Jesus when he came the first time? Born of a virgin, right? Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. Oh, and there is a virgin named Mary, and the angel Gabriel pierced her. So, born of a virgin. What else? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. When the the wise men came to Herod, where is the king of the Jews born? Oh, he's born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2. Right? So, there were some literal things. Anything else? Not a bone would be broken. Psalm 22, right? Um, They will look on him who they pierced the piercing of his side, literal things. What I take from that, I'll just tell you how I look at that. I take from that that there are times when God's prophecy is specific. And when it's specific, as long as you can be literal with it, try to be. There are times you can't be, but when you can be, try to be. So to me, when the Bible mentions a place or a name, I try to be as literal as I can about that. When the Bible mentions a number or something, I try to be literal about that if I can be. Um, doesn't mean I'm right, but I'm trying to learn from the experience of looking at the prophecy of the birth of Christ and then his birth and say, you know, when they talk about they will pierce his hands and his feet, oh, and they did pierce his hands and his feet. How about that? Like it was pretty specific and then it was specifically fulfilled, right? So, but then there's other prophecies that are more picturesque and, you know, he will be called a root out of Jesse and whatever. And, you know, I haven't heard Jesus call a root a lot. I don't people walk around going, hey, root, what's going on? Like, you know what I mean? But there's a picture there. They're talking about his family lineage as they talk about that. And, and that makes sense to me. It's, it's a, you know, a, a way of looking at the word of God. So as we look at prophecy, we're trying to sort it through like that. Um, and so let's try to read the Bible and, and see what it says for ourselves. So we ended at, at Zechariah 14, the coming of the Lord. Um, and the Lord, it kind of ends with, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And so I just want to kind of note that because what happens is when we get into this stuff, I'm not going to use the whiteboard a lot tonight, but I did want to use it for the timeline we've been using here just so that you can kind of picture this, all right? So we've got creation, whatever that is. Um, we've got the cross when Jesus came and died. After the cross, um, you know, he, he rose again and then he ascended up into heaven, right? Then we have all of this time between that, then and someday, Jesus comes again. We don't know when that is, but someday he comes again. And there's a, there's a bracket around that. At the end of all time, men, are, men face the final judgment. I'll draw a little gavel here. Right? The final judgment. And they go to their eternal destiny of heaven or hell. After the final judgment, and we call this period of time Biblically, the day of the Lord. Okay, In the day of the Lord, history will be brought to a close. Jesus will return. And, and somewhere in that, in that process, His coming will bring about the events that usher us into final judgment, eternal destination for all, the wicked and the just, and, and those who are God's people and those who are not, all of that. That kind of is not debatable. right? That's just biblical. That's just the way it is. Okay? What I want you to see from Zechariah 14 before we, before we move on from it is it does seem to suggest as you go through it, the, there's the armies gathered against Jerusalem. If you remember, you can go back and look at it if you want, but the armies gathered together against Jerusalem. Looks really dark. Looks really like it's going to be the end. And then Jesus comes. Mountain split open. Probably pretty impressive to the armies, I would think, Right? He defeats them with the word of his mouth, right? And then it says, then he is the king over all the earth. So it seems to be that his second coming is preceded by some climactic battle in in Zechariah 14. And, And after it, it's followed by Jesus being 
king over all the earth. All right, you follow me there? That's important as a clue. Uh, see how that lines up with some other things as we go forward here. So just note that before we get to Matthew 24. All right, now Matthew 24, Jesus talks about his second coming. So in Matthew 24, verse 30 and 31, here's what it says. Then, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And Jesus has been talking about prophecy kind of all, all through this chapter here. But he, and he talks about kind of that, that dark day. The, the sun will be dark and the moon won't give it light and all that. Then it says, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will... Send his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. All right. So Jesus says, there will come a day when you will see the Son of Man. Son of Man is a biblical prophetic term for the Messiah. Jesus has claimed that for himself and now is speaking of himself with that term, the Son of Man. I will return as the Messiah, the promised one, the Redeemer of Israel, the Christ in the Greek. Um, and I will deliver. And it says that when he returns, it will mean he's coming how? Where does he come? In the clouds. We've heard that a few times now, haven't we? Right? He will come in the clouds. So in case you were wondering, he's not going to just show up and materialize on the earth. He's going to come out of the sky. That I mean, pretty literally when they talk about clouds, I guess you could use that as a picturesque thing. But, to, but you know, when you relate it to what the angel said, He went up like this. He's going to come back the same way, right? And so in the clouds. And so Jesus returns bodily, physically in the clouds, according to what Jesus is saying here. And when the earth sees him, what do they do? They mourn. Why is that? Yeah. Now it's it's time to face final judgment. Your arguments are meaningless now. They, They have always been meaningless, but now you see them as meaningless because now he comes in power and glory. Now there is no one who can oppose him. He has come to offer at the, in his first advent life, grace, forgiveness. Now he comes to bring judgment as the judge of the earth. And so where you stand in that day, it is a, it is a sobering thing to see the God of the universe come. Um, it, is a, it is a time filled with sorrow. Um, it is a time filled with sorrow. When you think about people who will be ushered into eternity because they have chosen to rebel against God and his plan and his people, have chosen to fight against God Almighty as though you could. And here that foolishness is seen for what it is, just ridiculousness when he comes. And so it says that they will be mourning. Um, and then it says he has a trumpet and he gathers together all of his elect. Okay, so there's some kind of a sounding of the trumpet as he comes. Um, we'll hear about trumpets in other times in, in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. There's trumpets, and what does that mean? And is that referring to the same event or not the same event? But there's some kind of an announcement of his return through the trumpet, and there's some kind of gathering of the elect, uh, the elect being a, a reference to those that are his people, those who are his. And he gathers them from one end of the heavens to the other. I think that's an interesting statement. He gathers them from one end of the heavens to the other, not one end of the earth to the other. That's kind of weird. So, but he does talk about coming back. So you can start to get into all this like, well, what's that about? What's that about? That's what I'm saying. There's some prophecy stuff that's like, you could scratch your head and you can cross-reference yourself to death. But the reality is Jesus made it very clear he's coming back, right? All right. So what else did Jesus make clear? All right, skip down with me to verse 36 uh, and verse 42. Verse 36 says this, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, not the Son, but only the Father. Down in verse 42, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. All right, so what do we know for sure about his coming? We know he's coming, but we know we cannot know for sure what day or hour he's coming, which tells you right off the bat, if you hear somebody saying, that the Lord is coming back on such and such a day, you can, dis, you can disregard. As a matter of fact, last time that was a big thing in, in 2012, a lot of people were like, well, I know one thing for sure, he's not coming back that day. 
He might come back the day before or the day after, but he's not coming back that. Why, why do we say that? Because what Jesus said here is so plain. No one knows the day or the hour. And, and he even says, not even the Son, which is astounding to me. I don't know that I can even understand that. You know, the, the Trinity is in perfect fellowship, and yet Jesus is not even the Son. Um, is he talking about while I'm here on earth and I've, I've laid aside my, my, my God powers and I'm relying on the power of God through the Spirit? Or is he talking about that somehow in the Godhead we've kept it? I don't, I don't know what he's saying there. But what he's making it very plain is that if he doesn't know the day or the hour, you and I don't know the day or the hour, right? So he's saying that it's a useless thing to predict a day, an hour, and to try to live like you know when Jesus is coming again. But that does not mean that in this discourse, Jesus is saying, you'll just be like, surprise. Because the whole discourse is about, but you should have an idea. You know, he talks about the budding of the fig tree and he talks about, um, he talks about a lot of different things there. Therefore, keep watch, verse 42. <laughs> keep watch. What is he saying? Pay attention, right? Because you don't know the day he's coming. So pay attention. You should recognize as we are moving towards the end. Does anybody have a feeling in your soul that we are moving towards the end? So, and I think that's what he's saying. He's saying, recognize, what does that mean for you? If, if the end is near as a believer, if you believe all that the Bible says about heaven and hell and eternity and Jesus dying for our sins and, and giving us eternal life, and if you believe all of that and you believe that we are drawing near to the end, what do, what's your response to that as a believer? Joy, can't wait. Okay, that's one response, and it is meant to be the response, is our blessed hope, our, the joy of His appearing, right? We are to be longing and looking for Him to come back. If your Christianity does not bring you to a longing for the return of Christ, then you're probably missing something, right? Maybe you think you know Him and you don't. <laughs> Maybe you think you, you think you can just set your relationship with Christ aside and live for the things of this world right now, and you've become enamored with the things of this world, and you've forgotten about the blessedness of your Savior. There should be joy in the thought of Christ returning. And by the way, if there isn't, just live a little more and let life get really, really hard. Start to see some of your loved ones go. And it makes it very precious, doesn't it? To think about the return of our Lord, that it could be any time. That it could be any time. When I, I've shared this before, but when I was um, probably 11 or 12, I was in a fundamental Baptist church, um, little kid who thought he knew everything. And um, there was a guy, he was a guest speaker, came for revival services. And when we had revival services in my genre, it would be like a week's worth of nights. Everybody came back to the church every night for a week, right? And this guy who came was, a, was teaching on prophecy. He was teaching on the end times. And um, what he did is he said uh, to everybody, the night before the last night of the thing, he said, come tomorrow night and I will give you my prediction for when Jesus comes again. Tell everybody you know, come tomorrow night. I will tell you my prediction for when Jesus comes again. And I was like, well, you can't know. Because it says right here. And he, he built it up. He was very, very good at telling story and, and building it up and building it up. And of course, just like any good TV show, he waited till the very end for the thing that you want to hear about. And he said, so here it is. And I think with all my heart, I think this is true. I will tell you exactly when I think Jesus is coming back. He said, you ready for it? He said, I believe with all my soul, Jesus is coming back tonight. And he just and it was dead quiet. <laughs> you let the reality of that sink into you. I think Jesus is coming back tonight. And he said, and I've been wrong every night so far. <laughs> but he said, if you ask me tomorrow, when do you think Jesus is coming back? He said, I think he's coming back tonight. He said, I live like every day is the day he's coming back. Because I think then it puts me in a position to live wise, to live for what matters, to live with hope, to live with urgency. And even if I'm wrong about that, the other thing could be true, that this could be my day to go see him. Right? So either way, I win. And I thought, that's the idea of living on alert. What changes for you when you believe that Jesus could come back at any time? One thing, we should live with joy. We should live with hope. Nothing that happens in this life should overwhelm our trust, our faith, our hope in God Almighty. What else happens for you if you believe time is short? Tongue? 
pressing in to him. I want to know him. I want, to, I want him to be like real, present, alive. I want to, 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 to know that with all of my soul. I don't want to be far, far away. I don't want to know him here. I want to know him here, right? What else happens? We have to live so others see us and um, we spread the word. Time is running out for us to share this wonderful message, this life-changing, greatest message of all time with everybody we can. And who knows who will get it and who won't get it, but if tonight the Lord comes back, would you wish that you had one more chance to go tell some people that you never told? So let's go do that. If you know in your soul time is getting short, don't ignore that. Use that as motivation to go live. It's not that we just put aside all the business of this life because then people just, then you're nuts, right? People are like, oh, you're crazy. But as I live each day faithfully for what God ever God's called me to do, I also live with urgency for the kingdom of God. You know, it's not someday that I'm going to go make that thing right with the person that I need to confess or, or apologize to. Or, not someday, it's let me go do it. It's not someday that I'm going to start serving the Lord and using my gifts and, and speak. I'm going to clean up what I say and I'm going to direct my efforts a different way and I'm going to make different decisions in the way that I behave. And It's not someday. If it's urgent, then I start to get on it now. I start to do those things now, right? So if time is short, it changes the whole way I live because my values that would drive me to anything else are suddenly seen as so thin, so transparent, so nothing if I live with that urgency. So we know Jesus is coming again. We get a feel that it's soon. We can't know the day or the hour. Jesus kind of makes that clear in Matthew 24. By the way, uh, uh, anybody ever heard the series Left Behind? All right. Um, that phrase comes from this passage, and I just want to read it to you. I, I did not mean in any way, shape, or form to suggest that I do not believe in a rapture or God gathering his people or whatever, the movies that are said. We haven't even gotten to that yet. But what I will tell you is that that passage is not about God gathering his people. Okay, It's not wrong to say if you believe in a rapture that God will take his people home and others will be left behind. Um, but that originated with, from this passage and it originated from uh, a movie called Thief in the Night. Back in the 70s, some of, some of you have been in the faith a while, like, yeah, I remember that. Sun has come and you've been left behind. And, you know, if I was a guitar player, I'd play it for you. Yeah. And then Distant Thunder. And yeah. We had all those movies back then, and lots and lots of people came to Christ because of that. And that phrase became very, very popular to talk about the regret someone would have if they had the chance to accept Christ, but they didn't. And then Christ came back and took home his children, and you were left behind. All right? Let me read to you what, what Jesus says about it, all right? Verse 36, we just read. About that day or hour, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, not the Son, but only the Father. And then it says this. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So like Noah's people, like Noah's time, while he was building the ark for 100 years, like that, when judgment was coming in the, in the way of the flood, it's going to be like that. Judgment's around the corner, so like it was in the time of Noah, so will it be when the, at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the, the hand mill, one will be taken and the other left. All right, so... The picture there, and if you know the story of Noah, this is kind of astounding. Noah preached for 100 years building an ark. And they just said, you're an idiot. Why are you building a boat? Well, this rain, it never rained. This rain's going to come out of the heaven and the earth's going to flood and we're going to need a boat to save. And, And the Bible says that they partied until the day, think about that, until the day that the flood came and took them all away. In other words, their doom is coming and Noah is proclaiming it and they are ignoring it because they would rather party and believe that what they see is true rather than what the Word of God says is true. And so they're just having a good time right up until they've thrown their eternity away for the sake of a good time. 
And it says that they knew nothing, which really speaks volumes about how they responded to Noah's preaching, right? That they knew nothing meant Noah told them they didn't even want to hear it. They didn't even bother to take the time to listen to it in any meaningful way and consider it at all. They just were, they were stunned when it started to rain. Now, it says that the flood came and took them all away. Right? So who were the ones who were taken away? Right? He's not talking about Noah and the ark. He's talking about the ones who were partying. The flood came and took them all away. Right? They were taken in judgment. And so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man when Jesus returns. Two will be in a field. One will be taken in judgment, and the other will be left behind. Which one do you want to be? Oh, you want to be the left behind one. In other words, it's just it's a, it's a nice biblical phrase, but it doesn't actually apply to what it's been applied to. It's not illegitimate to talk about left behind, and, and you don't want to be the one left behind at the coming of Christ that way. But in this way, when we're talking about when the judgment is poured out, the one who's taken away is the one who's taken away in judgment. That's the way Jesus uses it. Does that make sense? All right. So at, at the coming of Christ, there's this idea of judgment on the godless. One will be taken and the other left. So somehow, when Jesus returns... There is a separating of people. These are the people that are righteous and good and godly. These are the the right ones. And these are the wicked. These are the ones who deserve judgment. There is a separating of them. Uh, Over in um, chapter 25, the next chapter over, verse 31 to 33, talks about um, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before them and He will separate the people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. He will separate the people. And then going on from there, he will say to these, depart from me. And he will say to these, enter into the joy of the Lord. So there is a separation of people at the coming of Christ to the wicked and the righteous, the lost and the saved. And, And it is a final separation. There is no coming back from that. When Jesus returns, it is accountability time. It is the same kind of effect as when someone passes from this life. There are those who believe, there are even those who teach, that after you pass from this life, you will have an opportunity then to accept Christ. There is absolutely nothing in the Word of God that suggests that to be true. The Bible talks about there is this life, there is a point in it to man wants to die, and after this, judgment. And that is... The accountability time. And similarly, when Christ comes back, that is the moment of accountability for people into their eternal destiny. All right? So that's kind of the coming of Christ. Does that make sense? Questions, thoughts, ideas before we move into millennium stuff? I just, I've read something um, where Jesus is talking about um, no man knows the day or the hour um, where they actually compared it to a Jewish marriage mm-hmm. where the groom would go and prepare a place for him and his bride and he didn't even know his father actually had to tell him that the place was ready yeah and for him to go and get his bride yeah so it was kind of neat it is interesting that that is the exact picture at the beginning of chapter 25 right after our discussion in 24 and right before the sheep and goats discussion is a discussion of 10 virgins waiting for their bridegroom to come and some were ready and some weren't but that, that picture that the, the groom would go home after the marriage was arranged and begin to prepare for the bride. And the preparation process was not exact science. It was, you know, working and building a, a mansion for them, which meant a room off of mom and dad's house, you know. And when, they, when it was done and dad said, it's time to go, then the son responded and went and got his bride. And the bride just you know, had a general idea. It's going to be a few months or whatever, but not an exact time. She just needed to be ready. And the, bride, the groom would show up and the bride would be ready and they would be, go be married. And so there's a, that's the picture Jesus uses in, in Matthew 25. Very, very similar. Cool. Dave. Um, in verse 34, chapter 24, at the end of yes. Jesus talking about the trumpets and so man coming back Jesus says that this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Yes. Who is in this generation? Yeah, that's one of those things we don't actually know. Um, man, there was a, for a long time, there was a sense, and it's part of what got people off track on setting dates here, was the, bloom, the, the uh, budding of the fig tree in verse 32, seen as the refounding of the nation of Israel. 
and this generation and what's a generation and how long from Israel's reforming as a nation into whatever. Um, then there is some sense of the fig tree being the beginning of the treaty that is made at the beginning of a seven-year treaty that, that's talked about in other places. So we don't actually know what that means. Um, I've heard a lot of people talk about um, this generation won't pass away, meaning that there was a kind of a couple of fulfillments. First of all, Jesus was revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration and then in his crucifixion and re- resurrection as the Messiah. This generation didn't pass away. And then in the coming time of judgment, that when, when the sun is darkened and the moon is whatever, when judgment's being poured out, it, it's not going to be long until all that happens. So that's, I, I've never gotten a real clear answer on that. I've never found a real clear answer on that. But those, there are a lot of vagaries, especially even as you read that whole chapter. <laughs> There's a lot of vagaries in there. All right, so let's go on. What we got, we got Jesus coming again. We got this timeline. But how do we get to heaven and hell and you know, what, what surrounds it? A lot of um, teaching about end times surrounds on what you believe about this period called the millennium. Um, 20, 30 years ago, millennium was a weird word to people who were not you know, biblically in tuned. But now it's a very normal word because we came into a new millennium. We know that a millennium means a thousand years. You know, we've heard it a lot, the new millennium. So a millennium means a thousand years. And so what, what are we talking about for the millennium? Well, what we're talking about is this idea that there is a, a time predicted when there will be a rule of Jesus over this earth. And there's lots of prophecies. So I want, I want us to read some of them tonight uh, and see what we think about that. What would Jesus' kingdom on earth look like? And is this something we see now? Is this something that's coming in the future? Is this something that happened in the past? All right. So uh, I need some people who will be willing to read for me. Uh, I got somebody who could read Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Very familiar verses, especially around Christmas time. All right. Um, Ze- <coughs> excuse me. Zechariah 9, 9, and 10. Who will read that for me? I have some. I need lots of readers. All right. Cliff, Zechariah 9, 9, and 10. Isaiah 2, 4. Who will read that for me? All right, Dane. Carrie, you can read Isaiah 65, 17 to 22. Uh, I need somebody for Isaiah 11, 6 to 9. All right, Linda. That's Isaiah 11, 6 to 9. Uh, Isaiah 65, 25. Mary. Isaiah 66, 23. One more. All right, Dave. Read that for me, Isaiah 66, 23. All right, so we're going to kind of, as we hear these, we're going to talk about what will Jesus' kingdom on earth look like? What are some of the prophecies that we have heard in the Old Testament uh, about what it will look like someday when Jesus reigns? What will that be like, okay? Uh, And you may recognize a few of these. All right, so let's start with Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Who had that for me? All right, go ahead, Larry. For to us, the child is born, to us, the son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be born in verse 7 all right so he will rule on the throne of his father david from that time on and forever he will establish peace right so Jesus rules as king over all the earth. We saw that also in Zechariah 14, that Jesus will rule as king over all the earth. So there is a suggestion in some way, shape, or form that Jesus is recognized as king on this earth, and his word is law here, rules as king over the earth somehow. All right? Um, Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O God Alright, so here we talk about your king is coming, but it also talks about, I will take away 
chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem, the battle bow will be broken. What's he talking about there? Peace, the end of, end of war on this earth, right? Um, his rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. All right, uh, Isaiah 2.4, who had that one? God damn. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. He will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. All right, so nation will not rise up against nation. They will not train for war anymore. They will take their swords and make them into plowshares. They, like, they don't need weapons anymore. Why? Because he's here. So we see first thing is Jesus is king over all the earth. His word is law here. Second thing, there is peace. There is an end of war. All right, so what do you think? Recognizing any time frames from history. Not yet, right? I mean, I don't feel like yet. Okay. Um, Isaiah 33, 20 to 22, and then 24. Who had that? Uh, what did I tell you? Oh, all right. Do that one, Kara. 65, 17 to 22. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, and they, they and their descendants with them. Okay. So what, what's he promising there? Long life. Someone who dies when they're 100 will be considered accursed. You know, they will be considered just a baby at 100. Different idea, right? Uh, there won't be lots of young births and th- young deaths and things like that. So the idea there is Jesus says when they come back, when I come back, when, I, when this rule happens, when this time period happens, when your Messiah shows up, there will be this kind of long life, like the years of a tree and that kind of stuff. That is Isaiah 65, 17 to 22. All right? I'm going to read for you Isaiah 33. Uh, it says this, Look on Zion, the city of our festivals. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a peaceful abode, a tent that will not be moved. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its ropes broken. There the Lord will be our mighty one. It will be a place of broad rivers and streams. No galley with oars will ride them. No mighty ship will sail them. For the Lord our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. In verse 24, it says, No one living in Zion will say, I am ill, and the sins of those who dwell there will be forgiven. So what's he talking about? No sickness. Huh. Uh, It goes over even into chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. There is a promise of physical healing to those who would be diseased or disabled or whatever in the kingdom. Pretty cool stuff, right? This is, this is kind of almost too good to be true. Uh, in Amos 9.13, I didn't ask you to look that up, but in Amos 9.13, it talks about new wine dripping from the mountains. It talks about that you won't even have time for the normal harvest and reaping and a wine press process because it'll just be coming in so fast. They'll just be all over each other. They'll be all tangled up in each other because the earth will produce in abundance. Um, one of the more familiar things, Isaiah 11, 6 to 9. Who had that one for me? Go ahead. 
So that's a pretty cool picture. The lion will lay down with the lamb and a little child will lead them. The bear and the cow will graze together. Like that's a different world than the world of danger and death and hunting and all that stuff that we live in. It says that when the kingdom comes, there will be taming of the animals. There will be peace on, amongst nations, but there will be peace even among species. It will be a restful time with Jesus as our king. Tom? Yeah, it really sounds like a restoration, doesn't it? Like we blew it and God comes back and fixes it back to what it was, right? Um, I might be jumping ahead, but it's talking about in this for my people. Is that, we're talking about not just like those of us who maybe have already yeah, we don't, we don't have a definition yet in the study we're doing here about my, who my people are, but that does go to the question of when, G, when God promises this, he's promising it to Israel. Does Israel get that promise? Do we get that promise? Does Israel lose that promise? Do we not participate? How does that work together? Uh, and that's, uh, first what I say is, let's see what the kingdom is like. And then we can talk about the different ideas about how that plays out. All right? Um, who has Isaiah 65, 25? Mary? The wolf and the lamb will keep together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, but the serpent's food will be dust. They will not do what is evil or destroy on my entire holy mountain, says the Lord. All right, so another prophecy on the same lines, right? Wild animals tame. Um, Isaiah 66, 23, one more. Who had that? From one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. All right, so all mankind will come bow down before me. So there is this prophecy, and it's repeated many times in Isaiah, Ezekiel, that all of the earth will come and worship the Lord. That's pretty cool. You think about that. Um, and so there's, there is a time somewhere on earth here where the whole earth bows down before the Lord. That's the prophecy that is made. Those are some of the, what I would say, were the highlights of the prophecies of the kingdom, right, on earth. Yep. Um, so at this point of time, it's still talking about physical death, um, where it talks about, you know, a hundred-year-old yes. dying. So there, there still is... In the kingdom, there still is the possibility of death, yes. Right. Because it says if someone does die at 100, they would be considered accursed. Yeah. So it's not that everybody in the kingdom is immortal. It's that when you get to the kingdom, there still is the possibility of death. Yeah. And that's a good point. Yeah. Is there, I guess that would still give the chance. I know it says that all of the earth will come and worship him. There's still a chance for unbelievers at that point throughout the world. Yeah. Well, we will see that in the kingdom of God, there is the promise of unbelievers, that, that there will be a rebellion uh, against God Almighty, um, and that some will choose to not, even in the kingdom. Um, where, where is the kingdom? When is the kingdom? What does it look like? That, that's another question. But the, the reality is, yes, it's pretty clear that there is the possibility of rejecting and, and being an unbeliever in the kingdom of God. Yeah. Dave? Well, the next verse after the one that I read is not as lovely. Okay. It says, and they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. Yeah. Yeah, the Bible, I mean, that's pretty gory. Um, and, but, it, but the idea of the prophet Isaiah there is to say to, to Israel, the enemies of God will be destroyed. 
And it will be a visible destruction. It's not some spiritualized, you know, they've been defeated spiritually. They, they will be destroyed physically, right? And, and as you read through some other prophecies, uh, there's, there's a lot of blood and gore uh, in the way that, that God brings history to a close. Um, but what I'll say is, when the Bible talks about Jesus' return and talks about him ruling over the earth, it talks about him ruling with a rod of iron. Um, and that the idea of that is that he is holding everybody to his word, to what he says, not in their soul, but in their actions, in their activities. So there, there still is an internal choice, even though you know, Jesus is ruling and in charge and, and all the wor- world comes and worships him, it doesn't mean that everybody means it. It doesn't mean that everybody is his child. That, that's a sobering thought. As we see churches grow, you know, is everybody here really, is this true? Is this real? Or is this just emotions we're going through? You know, and would we know the difference? Yeah, I read one time, uh, Francis Chan wrote the thing that said, you know, if the Spirit didn't show up on Sunday morning, would anyone know it? Or are we so programmed that we don't need the Spirit? If He shows up, that's a plus, that's a bonus, but... Or are we so desperate for the Spirit to be here that if He weren't here, we would walk out and feel like this was a total failure? You know what I mean? Is this stuff that only He can do here? Who, Kai? Yeah. Um, so in that um, period where God or Jesus is ruling on earth, um, how will like mercy and grace, His mercy and grace, like will there still be like? Yes. Well, I think it's it's hard to imagine all of it, but I do believe the Bible talks about as as the verses David read, Dave read and other things. It talks about um, the temple being rebuilt and sacrifices being offered. In other words, there are opportunities to address the things that we do wrong, just as there is today. Uh, and to receive God's mercy and grace for all of them. So there still is activity of faith. It may look different, just like our faith walk looks different than Israel's faith walk did, um, but it's still the same substance. It's always the same substance. So, Tone? You were talking about the literal and the figure, the metaphor. Yep. Uh, that scripture in Isaiah says that all mankind will come and bow before him, but he's going to be physically here. So how do you look at that? Is this going to be literal? Everybody's going to go to yeah. the end? Or? Yeah. Well, my best guess is that it's throughout, it's continual. It's probably not all at once. Um, it's probably a continual coming before him over time. But I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, there's a lot of things that are left to the imagination in some of that stuff. Uh, is technology play a part in that? You know what I mean? Do we... Are we connected via, you know, we're, there's lots and lots of space for us to worship? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and is it representation or is it literally every person in every nation? You know what I mean? There's lots of, to me, those are fuzzy things. To I, I can't nail that stuff down. Go ahead. Yes, let's read that. Because uh, what we're going to look at now, I want you to go to Revelation chapter 20. This is where we get the word millennium from. So third to last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. Um, well, we could actually go a little further down there, but uh, 1 to 6 is really the, the principal proper part that talks about what we would say, this is the passage on the millennium. So let's read it. Here's what it says. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. 
They saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image, had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. The next verse says, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from prison, will go out to deceive the nations, bring them for battle. So in seven verses, we have six times the, the phrase a thousand years mentioned, right? And so that idea is where we get this idea of Jesus ruling on earth for a thousand years. Every view of the millennium has to take into account this passage and what it says. Uh, this, what does a thousand years mean? Satan is bound during this time so that he can deceive the nations no more. What does that mean? Um, that there are people reigning with Christ in Jerusalem, right? That, what does that mean to account for that? And that this reign precedes the resurrection of the dead, the final resurrection of the dead, uh, right? So there's some resurrection before it. There's some because they reign with Christ throughout it. Um, and then there's a resurrection at the end, uh, the final resurrection. So I put the chart together. Probably all we can do tonight is just finish by looking at this chart. But the next two pages are detailed discussion about this stuff. So we'll dip our toe in the water here, but we won't be able to get fully formed into all of this tonight um, just because there's tons and tons of information uh, out there on this stuff. Uh, so there's three basic views about the millennium. The first one is what we would call amillennialism. Basically, amillennialism um, is like ah, meaning not, millennium. There is no millennium. That's amillennialism means, essentially, we don't believe that there is a literal earthly kingdom for a thousand years of Christ on earth. Lots and lots of people believe this. Um, lots of denominations believe this, okay? That there is no thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth. What they see when they read uh, the prophecies to um, uh, Isaiah um, and, and the stuff we read tonight and this stuff in Revelation, um, they do not see a physical kingdom on earth. They see a spiritual reign of Christ over his church throughout the church age. That's what they see. We'll, we'll dig into that a little bit more, but they do not see a, a reigning of Christ on this earth uh, at all. They see his reign being spiritual over the church, right? So Jesus reigns in heaven and the resurrection spoken of there uh, at the beginning and people who were dead and, and with him was a resurrection by being delivered into eternity, into life in heaven, and they reign with him in heaven. Okay, so that's called amillennialism. Okay, second view is postmillennialism. Postmillennialism is pretty unique uh, in that uh, I, I would say the way I've always thought of postmillennialism is this world's going to get better and better until Jesus comes again. Um, postmillennialism believes that Jesus comes at the end of the millennium, that his reign is over this earth from heaven, and that there is a promise of spiritual, political reign on this earth through Christians that this world will essentially be Christianized and then Jesus will return after a long period of his ruling over this earth. Uh, we make lots and lots of progress. We make good laws. People respond. The world is evangelized. And at the end of that, because we've done such a good job, Jesus returns. Okay? Third view is premillennialism, which just like postmillennialism means he comes at the end of the millennium, Premillennialism means he comes at the beginning of the millennium, okay? Premillennialism comes from a more literal interpretation uh, of Revelation and of the other scriptures we've read in that it sees a literal kingdom of Jesus for a thousand years on earth, right here on earth. When he returns, well, we talked about it with the second coming and Zechariah and Matthew 24 and all those things. When he returns, he becomes king and he rules on this earth for a thousand years. 
from that day forward. And at the end of that thousand years, there's a rebellion and that ushers in eternity. That's a, there's a literal interpretation of that. And so Jesus reigns on this earth uh, and that's the only approach, the, the premillennial approach is the only approach that sees Jesus literally reigning on the earth. Now, as you hear that, um, which of those do you think take the position that uh, Israel remains Israel and the church is, you know, does not inherit the promises of Israel and exclude Israel from those promises? Premillennialism. The, that is the more literal interpretation. And, and uh, so therefore, where is Jesus reigning in, in, in this? He's reigning in Jerusalem, as is prophesied. He's come back to be king in Jerusalem. All the world comes and worships about down to at Jerusalem. So there's a very literal thing about Israel continuing to be the promised land, Jerusalem being the promised site, the promised city, the holy city. The new Jerusalem in the next chapter continues to echo that. Post-millennialism, uh, and especially amillennialism, really believe that the church displaces Israel that Israel's rejection of Jesus removed them from God's covenant blessings and shifted those covenants by, by the work of Christ and by faith and by spiritual truth from the physical people of God into the spiritual people of God. And now all those promises, he meant them, but he meant them to the children who would be his own children by faith, which is what he had hoped Israel would be, but which Israel was not. And so now they've been shifted to the church. So I usually ask you, does that make sense? Have I confused you completely? <laughs> those three views are really the dominant views. And, and what I would say is as we go through them, uh, you know, I can't tell you for sure one of these is right, one of these is wrong. It's not like the second coming where I can say he's coming again. Uh, I can tell you that I think there's a lot more evidence uh, for one of them than the others, at least from, from the way I look at it. But if you have a different view, that's fine. Um, we're kind of moving from the more sure to the more shady. So we haven't gotten to the tribulation yet. We haven't gotten to the rapture yet. So it gets a little bit more and more cloudy as we go down this line. So we've gone from what we know for sure, and now we're moving into... So this is probably, of all the features of eschatology, this is probably the thing that's the most concrete, this idea of a millennium, because there's so much prophecy about it in the Old Testament about Jesus ruling as a king. His return and his, and his subsequent following rule as king. You saw it in Zechariah. If you went back a chapter here in Revelation, you would see his return in chapter 19, followed by his reign in chapter 20. And so over and over again, you see this idea of Jesus you know, returning and then reigning. Um, and so you've got to sort through what do I think that means and what, what, is that, uh, what does that do for us. So next time we will pick up on those next two pages. We will work through amillennialism, postmillennialism, and... Uh, Premillennialism. There's actually two different kinds of premillennialism: historic premill and dispensational premill. I know it's crazy, isn't it? You wonder why people argue over this stuff. I will tell you that of all of those positions, the one that brings up the most uh, debate, drama, divisiveness, uh, embarrassment, maybe to the Church of Christ is premillennialism. It's the one that people try to make predictions about a rapture and a tribulation and who's the Antichrist and all that kind of stuff. Amillennialism ignores it, not ignores it, but kind of like generalizes it all. So they don't, they're not looking for any particular Antichrist or whatever. Uh, and postmillennialism believes it's all going to fade away till, this, till the rule of Christ is established over the earth. So the ones that really do all this uh, dramatic, you know, can you make Hitler's name into 666 and that kind of stuff, is the people who are premillennialists. So uh, there's, you know, kind of cuts both ways. When you take the word of God really seriously and you look at the words of it and say, what does that word mean? Then you start to dig into, so what do I see around me? And I'm supposed to be looking for signs and I'm supposed to be keeping watch. And what does that mean? Am I supposed to be pointing out candidates for the Antichrist and false prophet and that kind of stuff? Um, I would suggest to you that if God wanted us to pick out who the, the false prophet was or the beast was, he probably wouldn't have been so vague about it. Uh, he probably would have been a little more clear about it. So... I think once people start saying you need to worship to buy food, you'll kind of know. You know what I mean? Like, uh, there's a pretty clear indication that if you're going to receive the mark of the beast, um, if that's the truth, if 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 what would I read in the Word of God about you know mark of the beast and the Antichrist and whatever, if if I'm reading that right, and there's a time that comes where you can't buy food or bread or do any business without the mark on your forehead or your hand, it's very clear that in order to receive that mark, you have to worship the beast. 
You have to worship the Antichrist. You don't accidentally get, you don't wake up one morning like, oh no, I accidentally got the mark of the beast. It doesn't happen, okay? So you don't have to worry. If you got the mark of the beast, it's like these people who are like, well, you know, they want to implant chips in your hand so that you can you know, buy stuff, whatever. It's the mark of the beast. Not, no, because in order to receive the mark of the beast, you have to worship the beast. It's the mark of the beast, right? So you, you can't accidentally do it. You can't unwittingly do it. It's a, it's a definite choice, just like it's a choice to become a child of God. It's a definitive choice. So hopefully it sets your minds at ease a little bit. But we'll, we'll dig into that next time. Uh, hopefully we're not throwing so much information out that we can't keep track of it all. And I've handed you notes so you can go back and look at any of that stuff again if you want to. Um, and uh, we'll keep going there for next week. All right.